This morning's reading is taken from Psalm 50, 16 through 23. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we read through our passage this morning in Romans, I want you to be on the lookout for these three ideas. God's judgment is inescapable. I think we have a slide there. God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment is righteous. And God's judgment is impartial. 16 verses in Romans chapter 2. The word of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you with judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Almighty God, Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit into the world to empower and equip us to be the people you call us to be and to do extraordinary things in the world that your name might be made glorious and famous. Lord, let your Spirit so 
Sanctify and empower us now that we might understand this truth here before us and be transformed by it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, John Maxwell tells a funny story about visiting a grandpa, visiting his grandchildren. And in the afternoon, grandpa would take a nap. And one day the kids decided to play a joke and they put Limburger cheese on grandpa's mustache. When he woke up, he started sniffing, and he said, the room stinks. And he went into the kitchen, and he said, it stinks here, too. And he went outside for a breath of fresh air, and after a minute, he said, the whole world stinks. Well, that's what the self-righteous person is like. They can sniff out the sins and shortcomings of everyone else around them, and they think everyone stinks but them. But, you know, sometimes the stink is on you. One kind of self-righteous person is the critical moralizer here in this passage of Scripture who judges the sins of others without recognizing their own sinfulness. We tend to do that, don't we? We tend to judge others by their actions, but ourselves by our intentions, In Romans 2, a part of Paul's sort of ongoing discussion about who the wrath of God rightly falls upon, he engages the critical moralizer, the person who is critical of the sins of others, but in many regards is guilty of the same things they're criticizing. And these people need to know that, number one, God's judgment is inescapable. Therefore, verse 1, therefore... You have no excuse, every one of you, who judges, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, you may remember Jesus' strongest rebuke in the Gospels fell on who? The Pharisees, because above all else, they were guilty of doing this. In fact, Jesus at one point even said, do what they say, but not what they do. And it was in this context that Jesus says those words in Matthew 7 and 1, judge not lest you be judged, for with what measure you meet out in judgment it will be measured again unto you. This is who he has in mind, critical moralizers, people who are judgmental and critical of others' people's sins without examining themselves. Famous story from the Old Testament is that of David and Bathsheba and David killing Uriah to steal Uriah's wife Bathsheba. And it appeared in 2 Samuel, if you read the story, that he got away with it until until Nathan the prophet confronted him. And if you you haven't read the story, you really should read the story. It really is amazing. And Nathan the prophet, after some time, David was comfortable. He had taken Bathsheba and his wife, gotten away with the murder and thought everything was okay, and Nathan the prophet came to him and said, David, I want to tell you a little story about a man who had many herds and a great flock and tons of sheep. And one day, guests were coming over to his house, and instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep, he went to his poor neighbor's house who owned one lamb, stole his poor neighbor's lamb, slaughtered it, and fed it to his guests. And Nathan said, What do you think should happen to the man that did that? 
And David is furious. You can imagine the conversation. He probably said, you tell me who he is, I'll kill him right now. And of course, Nathan said, what did Nathan say? You're the man. We have this tendency to be critical of the sins of other people while covering our own sins. We judge others harshly, but we're lenient with ourselves. This is just our fallen human nature. We do this. We all do it. It's hypocrisy. It's a gap between, and this is how hypocrisy is typically defined, it's a gap between what you believe, your ideal, and your actual actions, right? Your convictions are that these things are true, but you fall short in actually carrying those convictions out, and the gap between those two things is a kind of hypocrisy, and God hates it. Because for religious people, it tends to be a kind of religious pride that does not have compassion on the weaknesses of others, but judges others critically. Now, some people just have a critical spirit, right? You know what I'm talking about. Those people who think it's their job to point out every imperfection and flaw in everything and everyone else. On the Enneagram, it may be the number one, the reformer. I don't know, but... Some of us are just like that more than others. And it doesn't mean we can't make moral assessments. We know that we can because the Bible has told us what is right and what is wrong. It's not that we are not able to say this is wicked and this is righteous. We can do that. But when we do that, we ought to do it with great care. Because if we're not careful, we find ourselves being presumptuous with God Hypocrites are presumptuous because they think that their sins are acceptable in the sight of God. Oh, my sins are, oh, they're, they're not a big deal. But it's what those people are doing over there. It, it engenders a very us versus them, me versus them. It is high and mighty. It is self-righteous. And people have at times accurately critiqued churches and Christians for being high and mighty and having this kind of religious pride. Now, how are we presumptuous with God? Let me sort of drill down just a little bit more here. How can we be presumptuous with God? Well, we can be presumptuous with God when we denounce the sins of others that we're guilty of, and we think it's not the same because maybe our sins don't line up exactly like someone else's. So I'll give you an example. Maybe we say a lot about the sort of sexual looseness in our culture, but then are we looking at inappropriate images online, right? Illicit images, maybe we're addicted to some of those things and yet we moan about the sort of sexual and moral looseness in the culture around us. That's a kind of hypocrisy. Or do you judge other people for being greedy but never open your own heart to the needs of others to find out if other people are in need in ways you can help them? Don't be presumptuous. God isn't showing you mercy because you deserve it, but because he gives us time to repent. The patience and the kindness of God, Paul is saying, is not because we're without flaws and sins, it's because God gives us time to repent. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches 
of his kindness and patience without realizing it's meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Contrasted with the critical moralizer's judgment, which is not righteous, God's judgment is always righteous. And so the second thing we need to see is that God's judgment is righteous. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed and he will render to each one according to his works. Now this is the principle behind God's judgment. It's the principle of retributive, retributive justice. Everyone will be judged not by how righteous they think they are. This is Paul's argument. Not by how righteous they think they are, but by their actual deeds done. In other words, the way judgment works is not what you think about yourself. You can think you're righteous all day long, but that's not the barometer of judgment, the grounds of judgment for God. You can judge the sins of other people as being worse than your own sins, but that's not the barometer or grounds of God's judgment. It is the actual deeds done, the actual things that a person does. Now, why is this important? Because the critical, the critical, moralizer, person, the critical moralizer, their condemnation of others is the result of their own delusion. But God's standards are not our delusions about how righteous we are or how righteous we think they are, but actual behavior. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, we'll be judged by our works? That doesn't sound right. Well, here's what's going on. Paul is not telling people how to be saved. It isn't a discussion about salvation. It's a hypothetical argument with people and Paul does this a lot. If you read the Apostle Paul, he engages in hypothetical discussions with interlocutors, you know, other people who would object to his, the point he's making. And so he engages people in hypothetical arguments. And so it's a hypothetical argument with people who judge others out of, sense, out of a sense of moral superiority. Paul is saying, you think you're righteous? We'll see how righteous you are when God's judgment falls on you and you'll be found wanting. He's attacking religious pride. He's not charting a path for salvation. He's attacking religious pride. And Daryl Bach says this, pride preaches merit. Humility pleads for compassion. Pride negotiates as an equal, but humility approaches in need. Pride separates by putting others down, and humility identifies with others by way of identification. You might think, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He didn't need to be baptized. He was identifying with sinners, not as a sinner, but as a human being made in the image of God. Humility identifies with others, recognizing we all have the same need. Pride destroys through its alienating self-service. 
But humility opens doors with its power to sympathize with the struggle we share. Pride turns up its nose. Humility offers an open and lifted up hand, end quote. So the self-righteous person needs to know that if God judges rightly, it's over for them. That's what Paul is attacking. Self-righteousness, hypocrisy, critical moralizing. Now, we sometimes refer to self-righteous churches or Christians as legalistic. And I don't know what all of your background is, but I probably grew up in the most legalistic church you could grow up in. There were such strict rules. Women could not cut their hair. They had to wear skirts. And I remember, you know, 30 years ago in church for, for choir rehearsal, some of the women were nurses, and they came in their scrubs, and they had to pack a skirt in the car and put a skirt on over their scrubs so they could be in the church building. They could not cut their hair. Men could not have facial hair. They couldn't wear any jewelry. And the ironic thing, I mean, the list goes on. In some of the churches, you couldn't own a television. In some of the churches, a woman could not put on pantyhose because you had to put them on one leg at a time. That's the insanity of legalism, right? Because what happens is, and this is the failure of legalistic, self-righteous, critical, sort of moralizing churches, is instead of teaching people how to think Christianly about what it means to be alive in the world and respond to any host of situations, they, fo- they tend to focus on just a couple of rules, a handful, like a list of little rules that in their mind makes you holy in the sight of God, right? You know, sort of the uh, teetotaling mindset, right? Well, if they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't curse, you know, they're going to heaven kind of behavior. They usually have a few rules or some standard of holiness that they focus on. And it's ironic, of course, because if you focus on just a small group of rules alone, you tend to give yourself permission to do a whole host of other ungodly things because, well, by golly, you're keeping this list together. You know, you've, you've, got, you've checked these things off. But God's judgment is righteous. The third thing we need to see is that God's judgment is impartial. The veiled recipient of Paul's critique is really the mindset of the Jewish believers in the church in Rome because as we opened up the book of Romans, we talked about the fact that when Claudius came to power, he noticed that the Jews were fighting among themselves about someone named Cresto, who is likely a reference to Christ, and he banished all the Jews out of Rome for five years until he died. And when he died, the Jews in Rome were able, the Jews who were living in Rome who were banished, they were able to come back to Rome, but the Jewish Christians found that the church in Rome was largely, you know, occupied and controlled by Gentile believers. And there was this tension between Jewish Christians in Rome and Gentile Christians in Rome. And Paul, who's never been to Rome, writes this letter, this magnum opus, the book of Romans, in the context of that tension of the Gentile and Jewish Christians in Rome thinking differently about what it means to be acceptable in the sight of God. And of course, the Jews have the law. And so they judge their Gentile brothers and sisters by a very strict standard. And 
later on in the book, we get, by the time you get to chapter 14, Paul gets in the whole discussion of keeping kosher and circumcision and this whole thing because these are rules that the Jewish Christians think the Gentile Christians have to keep. And Paul's point here about the judgment of God and about moralizing and judging one another is that God isn't giving anyone a pass, that he sees the heart. And just because someone is Abraham's descendant, they don't get a pass. And this is probably radical stuff for the Jews in the first century because part of their religious pride was who they were. They were the covenant people of God who had been entrusted with the oracles of God, the law. God's not going to judge me by the standard he judges those Gentile dogs with. He may be thinking, well, that's great to know that that's the context that Romans was written in, but it has a whole lot of relevance for us today because in some veiled sense, as the people of God today, we can be that way. We can be that way with other people in the church, with people who are outsiders or just coming in, people who are new. We can be that way. But God is saying that the Jew and the Gentile, he judges equally. Now, he's building up to the gospel in chapter 3, but we're not there yet. And he says this in verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. There's that phrase again, the Jew first and also the Greek. Equal judgment. God judges human beings equally. He's not, par he's not partial. He's not giving a pass to one group and not the other. He judges people equally. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. God shows no partiality. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. So a few points here. There's no difference between Jews or Greeks in this regard. All have sinned. That's the point. Some Jews who have the law disobey, and some Gentiles who don't have the law obey. Right? Some Gentiles, Paul is saying, well, they're like a law in their own person when they do what God wants people to do. And some Jews who have the law, they have all the rules, still don't obey. And Paul is sort of saying, what's the difference? There really is no difference. Fundamentally, we're all sinners. That's the point he's making. And God is impartial. The point is not that some people can be accepted by God if they're good enough, but that there's no real fundamental difference between human beings. They're all judged by the same standard, God's law. The added dimension, of course, is that the Gentile Christians become, they have no benefit for becoming Jews. Again, I just mentioned chapter 14. You'll get in, we'll get into that later. So what's, what's the takeaway of all of this? How can we be encouraged with this information? Well, here's the takeaway, okay? For the unbeliever, you ought to know that God sees everything you do even in secret, and you'll be judged on those things no matter how much of a good person you think you are. Therefore, you need the gospel. For the believer, you ought to know that God is grieved by your critical spirit, and one day you too will give an account for your actions. Therefore, you need the gospel. 
The unbeliever needs the gospel. The believer needs the gospel. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel shows us in Christ we're completely loved in spite of our sins and we don't have anything to hide. Do you know why people judge others? Because they're afraid to be real. They're afraid to be who they are. They're afraid to admit that they're not perfect. But the gospel frees us from that. The gospel frees us to be real with God. The gospel frees us to be honest with ourselves. The gospel frees us from pretending. I mean, that's who, that's who Paul is really talking to, a pretender, a moral pretender. Because anyone who ever judged anyone else is, with some sense of superiority or religious pride, is a moral pretender. And when you're freed from pretending because you truly have embraced the promise of the gospel that God loves us in spite of our sins on account of his son Jesus, you're free to admit you're a wretched sinner and you're not any better than the person whose sins you judge. The gospel frees you from pretending. And it enables you to have compassion and love for other sinners because you revel in the idea of forgiveness. That's what ought to empower your gospel witness is the idea of forgiveness, right? Even with your children, you know, a father will beat his son for this, his own sins he sees in him, you know? And we often treat our children, we, we tell them the gospel is there for them, but we sort of treat them sometimes as if they ought to never need it. The gospel's forgiveness ought to empower us with such a sense of love and compassion for the shortcomings of others that what we proclaim is the forgiveness found in Jesus Christ, which is the only escape from judgment. God's judgment is true, is impartial. God's judgment is righteous. God's judgment is inescapable. But there is a remedy, and it is the gospel and the gospel alone. Because when you are completely forgiving by God, you have nothing to hide. You don't have to keep up appearances. Because you're able to recognize that we are all a work in progress, being sanctified progressively, little by little. We're all on the, the way there. We're all on the road there of God sanctifying us and being made into the likeness and image of his son Jesus. So when you go out into your world this week, this afternoon, it's a beautiful, beautiful day. I think today, I don't know if it's officially the first day of spring, but it sure feels like it. And when you go out into your world this week, this afternoon, whether at school, home, your place of employment, let the gratitude for the forgiveness of the gospel empower how you see other people and have compassion on other wretched sinners like you. Let's pray. 
Father, Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit to do wonderful things in your people and extraordinary things in the world. May we be so empowered by the Spirit's work and equipped with the compassion and love that Jesus had for sinners that we too would proclaim your kingdom, would proclaim even the idea of judgment with a fearful sense of reverent humility, knowing that we are wretched sinners too who have received the forgiveness supplied only in your son Jesus. May we do this with conviction and courage and compassion this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen.